Good morning. Good morning. This morning we have departed uh, for what I think is but a moment from Hebrews chapter chapter eight, and we're looking in Revelation chapter three, and this is sort of a surprise for me this week as a question has been brought to my attention, in which as I began to look more intently at what I knew to be the answer. Uh, it led me to the point in which I thought it was necessary for the church to visit this passage, uh, most importantly, this particular verse. And so what I want to do is begin here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, uh, and read to the end of this passage. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me. Gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Most gracious and almighty God of heaven, the God of heaven and earth, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we come to you, O oh God, that you may hear our cry, Lord, that you would hear our plea this morning as we open the text of Scripture to see what it may testify to us of our Savior. Lord, as we open this book, as we search for the Son in the text, Lord, there will come to us a revelation of what our Savior has done. There will also come to us, Lord, a conviction of sin, Lord, a perversion of this text that this world has offered to the unregenerate. Lord, that we have taken your word and changed it and manipulated it to make it say something that it does not. Or the only thing that we may ask this morning is for forgiveness of what we have done and what we have allowed to be done with your word. Lord, we ask for your grace and your mercy. Lord, that you would reveal to us the truth of this passage. Lord, that from it there would be deep conviction over sin. Lord, that there would be introspection before we observe communion this morning. Lord, that there would be great joy to know the Savior that knocks at the door. Lord, we ask that you would allow us to discern things that are not for natural man, but those things that are reserved for your true church. And in that, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and truth and offer uh, to you all of the glory and the honor and the power that is due your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we read the text of Scripture this morning. I doubt that any of you have heard a, vor a verse, excuse me, 
more well known amongst professing Christians, except for maybe John 3.16. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 that begins, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, seems at times to be a favorite amongst those who call themselves evangelizing Christians. People who in their own mind are engaged in attempting to share the gospel and attempting to win souls. They go out with this mentality that they are serving God by repeating the words of this text, asking sinners to repent, saying that this is an image of Christ inviting to salvation. Unfortunately, this is a mass abuse of Scripture. Many assert things from this text that were never meant to be asserted when the angel communicated it to Christ's bondservant here described in the first chapter, John. This is a rather sad truth. A truth that should convict the church and spur her to repent. I made mention last week that it has been some time since I gave a message, a title. And this week I will again repeat with what I had last week. I have a title for this sermon and it is called This Is Not An Invitation. When you hear a preacher say that about Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, there may be uh, the notion to feel as if your toes are being stepped on. For we have heard this, I know, countless number of times used as an evangelistic passage to beg sinners to repent. As if Christ was knocking on the door of their hearts asking to be let in. And this is very untrue. This is false. This is, in a sense, heresy. If you feel that your toes may be stepped on this morning. Just remember that the shoes that are stepping on those toes are those that are shod with the preparation of the gospel. The truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. For if one is to preach this message in its context, it must be from the point of view in which I will present to you this morning. In which God will present this morning. Behold, I stand at the door and knock and when we see this we cannot separate verse 20 from the rest of revelation we cannot separate it from the rest of chapter 3 we cannot separate it from chapter 2 nor chapter 1 because it is a message to the seven churches if you will turn back just a couple of pages to chapter 1 Looking at verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And thus for us is set the context in which we would receive chapter 3's verse 20. It is written in the midst of these letters to these churches to not exhort a church, but to admonish a sinful body. Seven churches represented mostly five bad and two good. What we have before us is not one of those churches that is excelling in the gospel. Not one that is very fruitful in its Christianity. So what we have first and foremost is what Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 is most certainly not. This 
is not an invitation to salvation. You have not been invited with verse 20 to answer the call of repentance and the gospel. For it is necessary that that have already taken place if this is to be called a church. If Laodicea is a church, they have already responded to the gospel. And it was not merely an invitation to invite Jesus in, but as we will see later, it was a calling from the Lord Jesus Christ to see sin as it is and to repent. In that way and in that way only shall this verse be tied to salvation. For in one sense, every verse is about salvation. But not every verse is an evangelistic call. And this is not that. The very first line of verse 14 tells us what we need to hear. What is Jesus calling this place where he is approached to sound upon their door the knocking of his holy hand? The amen he is called. The faithful and true witness he is called to the angel of the church. There is nowhere in scripture that Jesus refers to unbelievers as a church. And yet we have taken this passage most certainly in American Christianity and we have turned this into a message to unbelievers to repent and be saved. Yet Jesus calls this with the opening verse 14, the church. The already saved, the guaranteed of the promises of God. When Jesus is knocking and approaching this door. It is not to an unbeliever, but it is to a group of believers. Not a former church that is no more, for that is not possible. Not a church that used to be. Not a church that is to be in the future, but a church that is. This is important. This may be the most important thing that you hear as a church ever, except for the gospel in its original transmission before you were saved. This may be the very key to why you have not been satisfied with the church services to why you have not been satisfied with what the pastor does with what the deacons do with what your wife and your children are doing the key here this morning may lie with chapter 3 verse 20 we have christians as christians have forgotten what the church actually is and not what the church is but more importantly who the church is and who the church belongs to. This is the bride of Christ. When he says here to the angel of the church, he is saying to the angel of the body of Christ, to the minister in this highly regarded leadership position of those who already belong to me. This is his bride the chosen of God, the redeemed of the Lord, those of whom it is said, there is therefore now no condemnation. This is not a group of unbelievers. Is it possible that some were there? Unbelievers? Absolutely. Some crept in unawares, just like any other church, just like this church. Just like every church that you know of, it is possible that unbelievers were present. But this is a word from the Lord to those who have been saved. To those who were justified before God. And who remain to this day justified before the Lord. How is it then we have perverted the text? Sinful as these Laodiceans may have been. These are a people who belong to Jesus Christ. If we are to incorrectly interpret this text, 
do we as well wish to ignore Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This church is one built by the master's hand, even one as sinful as Laodicea. This is a church knit together in love. In fact, it is only love, the love of Christ for his bride that can hold a sinful people together. This is a church that is preserved through judgment. And it has passed and is in the past and is no longer future as it would be for those who are unregenerate. Verse 19 again declares the audience, those whom I love, beneficiaries, if you will, of Jesus Christ's rebuke and his discipline. Somehow we have said that this is the unbeliever. But this is not a general love for creation that is mentioned in verse 19, but it's the love of God that has spared some and has offered the peace of God that is described as surpassing all understanding. There is no peace like that apart from salvation, apart from already knowing Christ, have already responding to the gospel. That's not it. We pervert the simple gospel of Jesus Christ to say that this passage is one of soteriology. Though in some ways, as I said, it must be kin. After all, Jesus is not just a man, but he is a savior. So it must be tied to salvation, but it is not expressly describing how it comes about. That's a foregone conclusion that these people are saved that they have heard of Jesus Christ, that they have uh, repented of sin, responding to the gospel as God has provided the answer of the tongue. This is not an offer of the free grace of God that has yet to, been, yet to have been received, but this is a reminder of that free grace. This is a reminder of what Christ has done, a reminder of his sufficient supply and a reminder of our extreme need. No longer be lukewarm, he says, but be zealous unto repentance. Neither is it possible that unregenerate man can even repent. Have we so soon forgotten that man is unable apart from the regeneration given of Christ to even respond to the gospel? Should there be any repentance apart from faith? Should there be any faith apart from God granting us access through Jesus Christ? How can we say this is an invitation? How can we say that one may repent for in this passage, it does not describe Jesus as being Lord, as being Son of God, as being Savior. It simply says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. How can they know who He is and answer the door if they not already know? If they not be already familiar? This is not a passage that we should feel good about using as means of evangelism. I would say this morning that many of us ought to repent for using this passage out of context. Unregenerate man may not repent of sin. Jesus is not here asking one to believe or to confess that he is Lord, but he is there because this has already happened. He has given belief. He has granted faith. And there has been an acknowledgement of his lordship. These are things that have already been acknowledged if this is what Jesus calls a church. 
By the mere fact that he states repentance is even possible, it is an admission that the context is to believers, still sinful believers. At this point, the text is applicable not simply to this sinful church called Laodicea, but it is a message to every Christian who is the church. This is a message to the individuals in the pews, and this is a message to even Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. A group of still sinful believers. Instead of an offering of salvation, this is an illustration and an instruction to repent as a result of God's love. Not believe unto salvation because of knocking. It should be convicting and shameful for any follower of Christ to view the text as a lifeline unto salvation. Have you forgotten what Jesus has declared? Matthew chapter 7, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Those are the words of Christ. In any other illustration that we have in the Bible about knocking, it is this. Knock and it shall be opened to you. To which I present not a case in which we are invited to invite Christ in. But think about this. This morning as you arrived at the church, only a few of you, those who were very early and those who were very late, came to the door and had to knock. There was somebody there. And most oftentimes when we are invited, I know you guys know both sides of this. You have invited people to your house and you have been invited, especially if you're not a pastor. You've been invited more places than I have. When someone invites you, they are expecting you. The knock that we have in Matthew chapter 7 is not a knock that you may come and knock on the door and Christ will be like, oh wow, someone's here. Let me see who that is. It's an invitation. He has given you the direct address to God the Father by describing to you who He is and what sin is, giving you faith and repentance that you may now come and you have the right door. Jesus says, I am the door. You may only knock if Christ has called and has invited you. This is likened unto that feast of the wedding that we see. No one was coming. The order was to go out and compel them to come. This is what God has done through the gospel. Matthew chapter 7 presents this. Not that you may invite Christ into your life, but Christ has given you access and He is there and He is available and He is expecting all those whom the Father has given Him. And He is not expecting, hoping that they will show up, but He is expecting, knowing that the professor of Christ shall find the door unto everlasting life. This is not what is presented in Revelation chapter 3. You see how those two would be opposing? If we use both of those verses and say that they describe salvation, we have an issue. That means that there's two ways to find Christ, that there's two ways to salvation, one that He may ask us or one that we may ask Him. That is false. If we want to talk about salvation and knocking, Matthew chapter 7 is the place. The command is that the sinner knock and come into Christ to flee from God's wrath by running into the arms of the Savior. This is more like what we see in a movie when someone runs up to the door and they're knocking because they know death is waiting. Christ has said, if you knock on this door, death shall not have its sting. As I thought about this morning, what it meant for Christ to be resurrected and ascended leave the grave i'm reminded as well that he left behind two things he left behind a little bit of grave clothes 
And he left behind a whole lot of sin and death. What an amazing picture that our Christ has risen from the grave and ascended to this throne that is described for us this morning. Run from God's wrath by running into the arms of the Savior. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus declares, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Shall go in and out, shall find pasture. In verse 7, he says that he is the gate for the sheep. This is how salvation works. Christ is no beggar standing at the door to the church asking that you take him in and be saved. What a foolish example have professing Christians made of this verse to picture Christ as one not able to simply knock the door down if he wished. This is his building. I submit to you that the Muslim mosque or his building, that the Jehovah's Witnesses are meeting in his building, that those worshiping Satan this morning are doing so with his provision, his breath. What does not belong to God? That is what we have said when we said that Jesus is knocking at this door, inviting one to be saved if they open. We have pictured for the world a powerless Christ. A coward Christ. A possible Savior instead of a risen Savior. Instead of a conqueror of death. He's the drawer of all men unto Himself. Bidding by call, that is, that they come to him and enter his gates. You may not knock on the door of Christ unless he has given you the spiritual coordinates. Unless he has called you and revealed to you. Simply doesn't happen any other way. You must come to him and enter through his gates. Enter by His door, by His sovereign decree of His irresistible grace. The promise of verse 20 continues, I will come in to Him. Not into, one word. We're still, we haven't even made it to the part of what this is. We're still on what this is not. Unfortunately, the King James renders this particular preposition as the word into, I-N-T-O, rather than what it ought to be, I-N space T-O. The difference is that the word into uh, presupposes that he is coming into as if he is entering into a heart, as if he is passing through into the soul, as if he is merging, when in fact the text says, I will come in to, in being with the presence to the one who is receiving in the presence to commune with. And that is why this is so important that we hear these words this morning before we observe communion. This is not a call into salvation. This is a call in which Christ says, I am knocking at the door. I am ready to commune with you. He doesn't commune with unbelievers. Christ doesn't suck any longer with the sinful man of Deceitful heart. Christ in his flesh came and the disciples were astonished that he would eat and drink and talk to sinners. Some were saved. Some we know went away condemned. This morning, text verse 20 is not speaking about a preparation, a preposition that is that describes permeation into the heart. But instead, it is an into that means amongst and towards the people he calls the church. 
Any other way that we look at this is a perversion that we call decisional regeneration. An altar call of easy believism. And asking Christ into my heart perspective that is neither godly nor gospel. In the words of Paul, this message in chapter 3 verse 20 begs this question. Who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? How should we understand this verse? Let us look again. Christ stands at the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What is the issue? The issue is that the church is meeting and Christ is not present. This may be the first time you've ever thought about that. It is possible, and we see it in the text, that the church is assembling, but the Savior is not present. Detrimental to the spiritual well-being of Christians. Dangerous. And this is not for the church down the road. This may be for those of you who are sitting in the pew. This could be for those behind the pulpit. This could be any number of professing saved Christian. What a revelation. Indeed, what a fitting place for this verse. The issue is that the church is meeting and Christ is not present. There is not any true worship to be had in Laodicea. Doesn't seem it is possible. Yet, is there to be true communion? Should we think that they would partake of the cup and of the bread and that Christ would be in them? That they would resemble Christ? That they would serve as a marker and a remembrance of Him? How could they? The church was meeting and Christ was not present. A true guest of honor has been left out in the cold. But after all, why would Christ come in? Why would he dare? Do you remember what he said? You are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. You say that I am rich and I have become wealthy and I need nothing. Why would Christ come? The church is meeting because they need Christ. Church is meeting because they need holiness. They need righteousness. They need refining. All of the things that Christ even says almost mockingly. I'm going to counsel you that you need to buy these things. Again, it can't be salvation because when he describes those things in a salvific, uh, with a salvific point of view, he says, come, eat and drink, buy with no money. Here he's appealing to the flesh of these Laodiceans saying, if you think you're so rich, buy what you have not. There is a robe of righteousness which you need to cover your sin. There is some perfection yet to be had, yet you are content. Similarly, Paul would describe these as if, as if they were carnal. Christ has been left out. The church has already determined that they are now rich and wealthy and without need. This, unfortunately, is the attitude of professing Christians. Whether you are willing to admit it or not, this is the attitude of someone that you know. This may be the attitude of someone sitting next to you. The very preachers who would abuse this text of Scripture by referring to it as a call of salvation or a call to salvation are the very same ones that will preach about carnal, false Christians as if they had never come or as if they had maybe come once and never to sup again. Lacking repentance. Losing salvation. Being in no way conformed to the image of Christ. And many of these same preachers will attempt to stir the emotions 
of the people and preach the wrath of God. To preach fire and brimstone in order to scare one into repentance. And with that, a yearly subscription, a date set on the calendar for the baptistry, once, twice, three times, half a dozen times, when Christ does so address a similar group with Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. The issue here is not salvation, for God is very clear that man is uh, immediately justified, but he is still in sin. He shall not be perfect until he is made exactly like Christ. There is a need in the church. These did not see it. These are those who have seemed to abandon their first love, forgotten the continual need for Christ Jesus, those who have fallen asleep and forsaken the watch of the second coming. This is a message not to the church who will in the future be saved, but those who are already called by name. Notice the text here doesn't say, Behold, I stand at the door if anyone hears my knock. He doesn't say that. He could have. If anyone, behold, I stand at the door if anyone hears me. But the text doesn't say that, does it? It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice. Who may hear the voice of Christ? Very simple. John tells us in his epistle. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. This is not a text about goats hearing the voice of the knock of Jesus Christ. This is about the church. My sheep hear my voice. Another they will not follow. Someone here is instructed to open the door at the hearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the door of salvation. For only the Savior, God, man, Jesus, the Christ, is that door and may open it. This is a guarantee that if the door be opened by the church, Christ will come in and commune. It's only possible communing with our Lord if he has already paid the price. If he has already ransomed the man, if he has already saved the sinner, if he has already convicted the church and convinced her of sin. This is a church. This is a message to saved people. This is the grace of God to the sheep about the son. The message is truly about being honest with God. Being honest with God because he has already been beyond honest with us. He has revealed to us the truth of the gospel. The truth of our Savior. That he is perfect. That we are not. That sin is there where we did not see because we are blind. And it was taking us headlong into death. And he has ransomed us. He has prepared for us a place. And it is not in hell. It is not in a grave. But we sing about it in hymns, celestial shores, mansions sublime, streets of gold. This is heaven, the presence of God. God has not only been honest with us in revealing the wages of sin and death, but he has proven to be a promise keeper to those who trust in his son who have at this time already called upon his name. They shall not perish, he says, but have everlasting life. Still, as always, man fails to be honest about sin. The Laodicean church had not forsaken sin altogether, but had instead forsaken, forsaken excuse me, their vigilance towards sin. They were no longer looking to see if they sin. They thought, hey, we got the free pass. We believe in Christ. We don't have to worry about sin. He's going to cover it all. Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? No! The text of Scripture says. It's sad churches feel this way. 
sad that many here may feel this way. He says, take up the cross. Follow me. We are not concerned as we ought to be. If you would permit me to say it this way, they were satisfied and no longer hungry. The feast was at the door. This is quickly denoted by the imagery that Christ was standing there and not inside with his sheep. You understand what I'm saying? This is a church without a meal. Couldn't have been a Baptist church, could it? It's a Baptist church without a meal. A church of Christ without a Savior. A Lord's Supper with no bread and with no drink. When it comes to Laodicea, the diner, the diners were inside and the feast was on the steps. The bread of life was waiting at the door and the truth this morning that so many approached the Lord's table, the truth is that they're hungry because they have left Christ knocking at the door. Churches instructed when observing these things to eat together. The church is not together unless Christ is at the table. Unless Christ is the center of the message. Unless Christ is the focus of the worship. Unless he is the exaltation and the words from the tongue. What a lie we've been sold about Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. Today we must be honest with God. 1 John chapter 1 verse 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This church was satisfied. They didn't need Christ. They ignored sin. In every regard without uh, expressly and intently saying it, they were denying that they were sinful. Verse 20 deals with fellowship with Christ. It is doing something else as well. It is informing us that our fellowship must begin with honesty before God. Do you think that God didn't know Adam had sinned? Do you think that God didn't know where Adam was hiding? Wages of sin were death, whether Adam knew if God knew or not. The reality is that he couldn't hide from God. God expected him to be honest, and he asked a question, where are you? He was hiding because he was naked. The church at Laodicea was as Christ depicted, hiding and naked. They were hiding behind the name church. We must be honest with God. They were not communing because they were not repenting. They were not repenting because they were not being honest. They were not being honest because there was no confession. If we confess our sins... 1 John 1, 9, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, this was not about salvation. The church no longer needed to be saved, but she needed and still today needs to be cleansed from unrighteousness. The parallel text, I believe, is presented in the epistle of John chapter 13, verses 5 to 10. Then he poured the water into the basin and began washing the disciples' feet and wiping them with a towel which he had tied around himself. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, you are washing my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not realize right now, but you will understand later. 
Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no place with me. Simon Peter then responds to the Lord. He says, then wash not my feet, but also my hands and my head, Lord. Jesus responds again. He says, he who bathes needs only to wash his feet. Otherwise, he is completely clean. There is the opposite end of the spectrum. Here is presented with Laodicea church that doesn't think they needed to be washed. Doesn't think that they need to commune with the Lord. And in fact, doesn't think they have a need, period. And yet Simon presents after Jesus says, hey, I need to wash these feet. He says, well, if that's the case, wash me all. And Jesus is saying what he has said with the church of Laodicea. What I have done is enough. Jesus is sort of picturing for us here a shirt that goes into a washing machine. And it has a, a stain on it. And you can throw it in there and put a little soap on it, a little confession and it comes out and technically we call it a clean shirt, but it's still got a stain. Because the area that was soiled the most has not been scrubbed the best. This is about confession. This is what is happening when the church expresses no need for Christ and is generalizing in their confession or even worse, not confessing at all. We need to be honest with God. Confession is a necessity. Confession is not only needful, but it is something to be habitually practiced. It is something that is powerful and it is essential we need to be honest with God. This Laodicean church, like every church, is not yet perfect. That includes this one. That includes its many members and the entire body. We are of simply one or two groups here. We are saved sinners or we are lost sinners. The common denominator is sin. That which saves is knowing Christ. Called the text this morning is for confession, not conversion. Jesus is looking that they confess the need of their heart, the need for righteousness, need for refining, for holiness, godliness need for cleansing from sin. What does David say? Against thee and thee alone have I sinned. A terrible thing is it for the church not to confess. The Bible warns about it. If you are without confession, there is no growth. There is little life. There is no prosperity without confession. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm of David. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away. And with the fever heat of summer, Selah, 
Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. What a word from David. He hid his sin, so he thought. He did not confess and he wrongfully assumed that God would turn a blind eye and would remain ignorant to his sin. Church, when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come and dine with him and he with me. He is calling for confession. Lord knows what you think. He knows what you have thought in the past, what you will think in the future, what you will act upon, what you hate and who you hate, what you love that you shouldn't, what you say that you should have not, and how you feel when it is sinful. Nothing is hidden from Christ. The, uh, the wonderful thing about the gospel is that God does have all of these requirements, but God does not require anything that he does not as well provide. When God here is requiring that this church confess, he's requiring confession, but he has provided through Christ conviction. He even says everything that is wrong with the church. You have no need for me. You think that you're wealthy, that you're rich. You're naked. You're destitute without Christ. One of my favorite preachers, H.B. Charles Jr., he said, we sing the song, count your many blessings, name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. But he said, also when it comes to confession, Count your many sins, name them one by one, and when you do, it will surprise you what you have done. And only surpassing the surprise to what you have done will be the marvelous grace of Christ that has covered every one of those sins. But he requires confession. He went on to say the problem is that when we confess sin and we're guilty, if you can't say amen here, you ought to say ouch. We like to teach our kids even to pray, Lord, forgive me for all my sin. We generalize sin. We lump it into one category. We don't want to talk about those individual sins. And he reminded me with these words. He said, listen, when the church does something like that, when you and I do something like that, we are sinning retail and confessing wholesale. That just doesn't work with God. God is bidding us and commanding us to repent. You know, when you have children, they like to tell on each other. They like to tattletale, as we call it. God is saying that it is necessary not for me to know what you do, but for you to know that I know you need to tattletale on yourself. You need to make it known to God that you have sinned. Short accounts with God. Not waiting till tonight when you go home. I'll, I'll pray about it tonight. I'll ask God to forgive me all my sins. That is not enough. As I thought about it, when we sin as we will, we must treat sin and repentance and confession as if it were a race. That when we sin, we are racing to that throne of grace for the mercy of God before Satan asks for justice. That ought to be the view that we have of sin and confession. I want to beat Satan there to tell God what I have done. To tell of my iniquity to tell of my sin because I know he will hear and he as a mediator shall present 
the case that is written on his hands and on his feet. The evidence in his pierced side that the blood has been applied. The church should confess and repent. Repent means that we admit that sin is just what God has declared it is. That if somebody comes up and says, how do you like my dress? And you tell them, oh, it's nice. And you lie, that is just as bad as any other sin. That the smallest sin deserves death. We need to be honest with God. As we look back before we observe communion this morning, it's a wonderful place to be, to know that Christ, even amongst sin, is willing and long-suffering toward usward, this church, that none should perish, that He would knock and that we would not hear, but we would hear the voice of our Savior. That we would hear the decree that sin should bring death, but He has brought life. This morning, we all know where we have sinned. Wonderful thing about the Bible, God's Word, Christ, the living Word, is that in requiring confession, He has revealed conviction. Those sins that we were ignorant about before and even those that we deny even now. Nothing is hidden. This morning, when we think about sin, we ought to think about each and every one on the individual basis. Just as we think about the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, the pardon at each moment, for there is a case in heaven to be made for every sin that has ever been committed, yet He is there as the Bible calls Him Advocate. He's an Advocate. An advocate is someone who speaks for someone who cannot speak for themselves. You have no other argument. You have no other plea except that Jesus died and that He died for me. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before You once again, Lord, let us not ever, not ever more, Lord, take this verse out of context. Lord, the, the bad part about taking it out of context is that we make little of your salvation. But also, Lord, we miss that this verse is speaking to this church. Lord, we are applying a scripture that is meant for us to the unsaved world. Lord, let us be quick to repent. Lord, we know that you are full of grace, full of mercy. Lord, if it were not for you, these things would not exist even in their temporal and partial form. Lord, this morning we look to you as we examine ourselves, God, as we consider our countless number of sins. Lord, and we ask that you would not allow us to go one moment beyond the sin before we reach a point of conviction and confession. Lord, that we would be reminded that we sin against none other than Thee, the Holy God. Lord, let us be reminded that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the door unto salvation. 
that he is drawing all men unto himself, that he alone is able to save, that he alone can give the answer to the gospel, a proper response with repentance and faith. Lord, this morning, let us look to our Savior. Lord, in confession, and let us receive of our Savior. These eternal spiritual blessings, forgiveness, or those things that you say are cast into a sea of forgetfulness. Or let us be reminded in every season that we are sinners and that you are a Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.